Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. First Corinthians, and we're going to be in First Corinthians up until and including around Easter time. Um, so it may be a book that you want to make yourself familiar with. This is how Paul starts his letter. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you wanted to read about Paul's initial relationship with the church in Corinth, then you'd need to go to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18 describes the events, the comings and goings, the the highlight reel, if you like, of Paul's time in Corinth. My summary would be this. It was a positive time. We know from Paul's missionary journey and the way that he established certain churches that sometimes it was exceptionally hard. He faced tremendous opposition and couldn't stay anywhere for any particular length of time. We know as well that he has relationship with churches that he's never actually been to. But if you read Acts chapter 18, and from generally what we know, Paul and Corinth, it was a positive, successful time. Uh, A couple of reasons I'd suggest that is, number one, he stayed there for at least 18 months. This wasn't a flying visit. This wasn't one Saturday in a synagogue preaching the gospel and then moving on. This is Paul turning up and living for months, at least a year and a half with these people. And in that time, he saw growth and had an amazing impact. Two things stand out for me when you turn to Acts chapter 18, and that is the fact that two men are mentioned as leaders of the synagogue, both of whom become Christians, both of whom decide to join Paul in putting their trust in Christ. The name of uh, the second gentleman to be the leader in the synagogue, replacing the first after he'd um, kind of made a profession, was Sosthenes. He's the guy who's mentioned at the start of the letter. And he's also the guy who takes a beating for the sake of the gospel. Another way we can tell that what Paul did in Corinth, or what God did through Paul in Corinth, was successful, was the opposition that they faced. Um, It wasn't just a case of standing up, declaring Jesus, and moving on, but there was pushback. The Jews in Corinth did not like Paul coming with his new ideas, or at least his new answers to the old questions that they'd been asking. So they tried to have Paul and his friends and his colleagues kicked out. Um, The officials, they were having none of it, but just to soothe their own consciences, they gave Sosthenes a beating. Paul left, we read that in Acts chapter 18, and he was quickly replaced by a young man called Apollos. Um, Priscilla and Aquila, two 
reasonably well-known people from this age. They were already there, and they took this young man, Apollos, under their wing. Apollos was, if you like, famous for how he could stand up and speak and convince. The, the sorts of things Paul always said he wasn't able to do. Um, and he spent some time with Priscilla and Aquila, learning the ins and the outs of the way, the Christian faith. And later, he became, if you like, Paul's substitute in Corinth as a leader there. And so, what Paul did, having been there and moved away, as he did with so many other churches uh, that he helped to establish, he didn't want distance to become an obstacle in his continued input, his continued love, his continued care, his continued support. So, what he did was respond by writing letters to them. This is what he says, carrying on, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, First Corinthians is actually just one of a number of letters we know that Paul wrote the church in Corinth. In your Bibles, you'll see 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, so we still have two letters that he wrote, but he also makes mention of at least one other letter being written that we don't have anymore. So the question I just want to kick us off with now is, why did Paul write this letter, 1 Corinthians? What was happening behind the scenes that prompted him to write in order to teach and to encourage and sharpen and challenge the church that he loved in Corinth? Well, from reading the letter, you'll find that there were two main reasons. Two reasons. First, they had written him with a list of questions. They were still young-ish in the faith. They were still experiencing challenges. They were still experiencing disagreements in the ins and outs of what it meant to follow Jesus in this world. So they wrote to Paul with a list of questions. Would you bring us clarity? Would you give us an answer on these issues? And we come across some of those in the letter where Paul specifically says, now, you've asked me about this. This is what I have to say on the matter. But there was a second reason too. And the second reason um, isn't quite as wholesome as that. Like, in our minds, probably, in our hearts, we think that's a good thing, isn't it? Paul has taken the gospel to these people. He's opened their eyes to the truth that is in Jesus Christ. And even though he's gone, they still look into him for teaching. They still look into him for support and encouragement. And he's answering their questions. The second reason is just troublesome. The second reason is disappointing. This is what we read. Um, I will read it in a second. But there had come to Paul through Chloe, an associate of his in Ephesus, a report about the church in Corinth. And it wasn't a positive report. We read in some of Paul's other letters um, that he takes pride when he hears certain churches discussed amongst other churches. Oh, I hear about the love that you have for each other. I hear about your generosity. I hear about your faith. You know, this is the, the word on the street about the church in this particular place. And it fills me with joy and I thank the Lord for it. The report that had reached Paul 
about life in Corinth, life in the Corinthian church, was one that deeply saddened him. And so, some of what he writes is particularly addressing the issues that have been brought back to him. There are questions to be answered, but there are also troubling issues going on in the church that need to be put right. I just wanted to share a word as well about the methodology that Paul employs. How does he write to the Corinthians? What is going on in the letter? And as I, I hope that we'll see this over the coming weeks and months, it's really one of the main things that we need to take away from the letter. We can zone in on the particular issues. We can zone in on the particular questions that they ask. But one of the absolute most helpful things that Paul does in 1 Corinthians is show us how we can address issues and questions that we have in our lives and in our church. Aside from the actual issues, and trust me, when we get to them, you'll think that they're a million miles away from life in Ammonford and Sandabier and Glenamon and all the places we come from. But he teaches them how to view the world, how to view the things that are happening in the church, how to view even the questions that they have of the Christian faith through a certain lens, through a certain filter of Jesus and him crucified. It's a bit like this. Um, have you ever seen, I hope you have, hands up, I, I need to know, um, videos on Facebook or YouTube or whatever of someone who's been colorblind their whole lives and then they receive a special pair of spectacles which allow them to see the world as it truly is for the first time. Has anybody ever seen one of those videos? Right, I wanted to play one this morning. So on Thursday in the office, I was searching YouTube for them. I spent 15 minutes weeping because they are absolutely amazing. So I decided, A, for licensing issues, I wasn't going to download it and play it because that would be illegal. Um, but also, you don't need to see me crying this morning. But basically, here's a, a picture, which we've got the full license for, which kind of demonstrates it, that they've invented in 2002, 2003, these glasses which help people who normally see the world in dull, flat colors, lifeless colors in the world. Everything's confused and what have you. Um, these lenses which help colorblind people to actually see the world as it truly is. Uh, some, of the, some of them are amazing. There's one where a bride has bought the groom these special lenses for their wedding day, and he puts them on, and he's like, oh, my days. He can see the colors in her bouquet of flowers that he had noticed were there. He looks up and he's like, oh, blue. And, and it is, it's genuinely, you're going to be in, locked in your houses this evening. You're not going to want to go out. Look up, colorblind glasses, okay? You will love it. But the point is this. They'd been seeing the world their entire lives. But they hadn't seen it truly for what it was until they put on these particular lenses until they actually had this device, these glasses, which would filter it and show them and reveal to them the world as it truly is. And that is sort of what Paul is doing in his letter to the Corinthians here, 1 Corinthians. Whatever question, whatever issue, he explains that issue, he defines that issue, but he helps them to see it through the lenses of the gospel, through the lenses of who Jesus is, through the lenses of Jesus living, dying, rising to life again in the future that we have, all of that. And he's going to address really broad issues, 
issues of division, issues of sexuality, issues of food and fasting, issues of public and private gatherings. He's even going to be addressing the reality and the nature of the resurrection, which you'd think is a reasonably fundamental part of Christianity. And in each instance, he's going to help them, he's going to help us to see those things through the truth of Christ crucified. Now, and another show of hands, does anybody here have two sets of glasses? One that you have to put on when you're far away, and one that you've got to switch over to when you're near, perhaps. Has anybody got two sets of glasses? Okay, quite a few. That's cool. I think one of the reasons that we will find it difficult is because we don't currently see the world as the Corinthians were seeing the world. That is to say, their prescription that they naturally are wearing is going to be different to the prescription that we all are wearing. Their culture, the things that they take for granted, the things that they assume are totally different, although maybe in part we'll see very similar, to the glasses that we're wearing. The same process, though, is going to have to take place where those glasses are taken off and the corrective lenses are put on. Um, but that's another thing that we need to be aware of, that Paul is describing and defining a world that we're going to see as very, very alien to us. And yet it's the same solution that we're going to be applying, putting on these corrective lenses, showing the world as it truly is. Another issue that we're going to encounter is struggling to pick apart and understand and to see, well, how is, how is that the gospel applied? How is that Paul's answer, putting on the corrective lenses of Jesus Christ crucified? And I think, sadly, one of the reasons that is going to be an issue for us and is going to make things a lot more difficult is because we have reduced the gospel. We have reduced the wonderful news of the king and his kingdom, his rule and his reign, all the things that Jesus achieved for, for us on the cross and his resurrection and his ascension. And we, culturally speaking now, have reduced that down to a sentence. This is how you get to heaven. And so, when these specks are put on, we, we aren't expecting to see all of these colors. We don't know what, we don't think violet should exist. We don't think indigo is something that is even in the world or in the explanation of the gospel. But hopefully, as we see how Paul explains the gospel, how it affects everybody's life, we'll get, also get a fuller glimpse of what it means to trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you, you agree and that there be no divisions amongst you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, there you are, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. A little bit later, chapter 3, this is what he writes. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you weren't ready for it. And even now, you are not ready. You're still not ready. You are still of the flesh. While there is jealousy, strife among you, you are not of the flesh, and you are only behaving in a human way. Paul has heard tale He's had reports that the Corinthian church was a deeply, deeply divided church. 
that in a place, in a space, in our world where unity should be seen and experienced more than anywhere else, there was backbiting, there was jealousy, there was strife, there was elbowing each other out of the way, there was standing on top of each other to get to the top of the pile, and it's just not the way life is supposed to be under Christ. If you want to know how important unity is in Christ's church, then you should probably go and read Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. Ephesians is a book that is all about the unity that Jesus has brought and how it is a wonderful thing, how it is a glorious thing, how it is something which declares the gospel in a wonderful way to anybody who sees it and experiences it. But that is not what life is like in Corinth. Life in Corinth is killing the church. Rather than bringing more life, it is killing the church because it is a church that is full of division. Verse 12, we read this of chapter 1. What I mean is this. Each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, that is Peter, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was it Paul who was crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you which is a weird thing for a pastor, for an evangelist to say, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Brackets. I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. But beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Corinth was very much a place of status and stature. It, as a city, had this reputation of getting ahead of everyone else. Being able to make a big deal of yourself was culturally, for them, very important. It's one of the things, actually, that might translate so um, nicely into our own society, that we actually rate and rank ourselves through things like likes on Instagram or Facebook friends. Uh, popularity is a very important thing in our culture. There's one story of a chap in Corinth that I thought that was worth sharing. He was so intent on having his name and himself thought of well that he bided his time. Uh, he worked his way through local government until he got himself the job of approving the building of public statues. He got a job in... Um, like the planning department of local government, specifically in charge of saying yes or no to statues being built. What do you think the first statue he approved was? It was a statue of himself. He paid for it with his own money, and he got, he's the one who came up with the inscription and everything, but he was so obsessed with being known and being thought highly of <laughs> that he got himself a job so that he could build himself a statue, a statue to his own glory and to his own fame and honor. That's the sort of place Corinth was. That was just normality for people. And it seems that this jostling, trying to figure out different ways that you could say you are better than somebody else, was still very much alive and well in the church. It'll come out again as we go further into the letter with other issues. But right here from the start, there are people 
who are dividing the church. There are people who are using their association with certain celebrities in the church world to get one up, to get one over everyone else. They decided to choose specific apostles, as it were, to really show that they were the true Christian ones, and everybody else should look up to them. It's a funny one, isn't it? Some of you say, I follow Paul. Some of you say, I follow Apollos. Some of you say, I follow Peter. Even more of you say, I follow Christ. Where do we expect Paul to go with that? That sort of division, that sort of um, grouping each other and pitting one against the other. You might expect Paul to say, right, come on, guys. I'm the one who brought the gospel to you. You're all of me. Apollos came after. We don't even know whether Peter ever turned up in Corinth. What are you doing siding with those? I'm the one who brought you the gospel. Maybe you think that's what he's going to say. Well, even from what we've read, you'd see clearly that is not Paul's game. Paul is not writing this letter to bring more people into the Pauline group in the church. Do you think he's going to back up those people who say rightly, I don't follow those men, I follow Christ? Weirdly, he doesn't say that either. He's got a critique, and we'll explore this in a second now, of those people who want to set Christ over and above and apart from the people who have been sent to declare the gospel to them. What's truly going on here is that they are dividing over style. They're dividing over style rather than substance. Let me put it like this. In the great drama of the gospel... They're arguing over who the best supporting actor is, rather than the story itself. They could probably, well, and I'm going to take a guess at how they would have articulated why they supported the people that they supported. Those people who are following Paul, they are people who are standing up for, I don't know, what? Could be originality. We are the ones who have been here since from the, where from the beginning, okay? You have joined us later. We're the ones who know what Paul was like, what he preached when he was here, okay? So you listen to us because we've been here since the beginning. Maybe that's what they're thinking. I think probably from what else Paul says, they're more the people who love Paul's, how he puts it, demonstration of power, that he went different places and proclaimed the gospel, and miraculous things happen. We see that in loads of other letters, that, that one of the hallmarks of people coming to faith under Paul's ministry is the Spirit coming and miracles being manifest amongst the church. I think that group, I follow Paul, are the people who especially think that miracles and spiritual gifts are the most important thing in church life. The people who are taking sides with Apollos, I've hinted it already. Apollos was a guy who was known for how he could speak publicly. He was known for just framing things, arguing things in such a way that whether you wanted to disagree with him or not, you couldn't. That was Apollos. He was wonderful at alliterating points. He was wonderful at using pictures and metaphors and whatever else was needed to make the people listening be left without any option but to agree with him and to go along with him. How you speak, how you communicate, that's what's most important in the church. Some say that they followed Peter. Again, who knows? I think probably from what Paul writes now, 
that what they really liked was the kind of the old authority of Peter. Peter was someone who spent years with Jesus. He's not new to this game. He's kind of like going back right to the start. He is, if you like, the ancient, untouched, unblemished message. We want something that has got the most historicity to it, okay? The one that we can trace back the furthest. That's what we like with Peter. And then, of course, there were those who, most virtuous of all, they said, I don't need a man to come here and tell me how to live my life. I don't need a man to come and tell me what the world is like. I have direct access to Christ. And again, I said, I'll explain that in a little bit. In taking sides in this way, they were laying aside, even that last group, Jesus. They've taken the lenses off of the gospel and what's most important and instead, they've put on the lenses which show them each the world as they see best. The world in such a way that puts them at the top of the pile. Their preferences are so much more important to them than anything else. And Paul dismantles that, first of all, by showing that what they're searching for, be it power, be it wisdom and knowledge and speech, be it ancient authority, or even direct access to God and the, and the will of God, he dismantles it by showing them that the places that they're even trying to find those things are not sufficient. They're not even going to the best sources of those things if that's what they think is important, if that's what they think that they need. What they find in Paul of power is a true measure of power, but it is a fraction of what they find in Christ. What they find in Apollos in terms of wisdom is true wisdom, but it is a fraction of what they find in Christ. What they think that they're finding in Peter in terms of authority is true authority, but it is a fraction of the authority that they find in Christ. Read along with me if you want. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. So that's what you think life is about. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe, the person who knows it all? Where is the debater of this age, the person who can, no matter what position you give them, can always come out on top? God's made foolish the wisdom of this world. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, we haven't reasoned our way to Christ, it pleased God through the folly. It seems like it. If, if you're going to go around the church, if you're going to try to assess things, if you're going to try and come up with a, with a, a catchy way of putting the cross, it's, you're not going to find it because it's folly what we preach to save those who believe. This is what the world is like. Jews demand signs, power. Greeks seek wisdom. But we, we cling to Christ crucified. Now, he admits it. That is a stumbling block to the Jews. That is folly to the Gentiles. But to everyone who's being called, whether that's a Jew, whether it's a Greek, Christ is the power of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. Even what seems 
foolishness in God is wiser than anything men come up with. Even that which seems weakness in God is stronger than anything men come up with. Think about this, he says to them. Think about your calling, brothers. Not many of you were actually wise, were you? According to worldly standards, you weren't the pick of the bunch. Not many of you were powerful, again, by worldly standards. Not many were from noble birth. God has chosen what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. Don't, don't go looking at people like Paul and Apollos and Peter or, or, or other individuals in the church to, to feel like, yes, now we've got it. Because you won't find true wisdom or true strength there. Because God is choosing things which look shambolic. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing, to bring to nothing things that are, so that human, no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Again, that's the central theme, the central character. Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that what is written will be true. Let nobody boast except a boast in the Lord. He, he, he zooms in on himself now. He hones in and he says this, just in case anybody's thinking, well, what Paul's maneuvering now so that he would be the only one left? I when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He's being honest. This was not the guy that I was. I decided to know nothing amongst you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, not power. I was weak with you in fear and much trembling. My speech my message, they weren't implausible words of wisdom, but they were in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Don't say, I belong to Paul. Don't say, I belong to Apollos. Don't say, I belong to Peter. It's the power of God, the wisdom of God at work amongst you. Yet, among the mature, we do impart wisdom. He's saying the thing is, I'm not saying that we don't have those things. I came and power was displayed. We speak and there is wisdom. There is truth. There is a sense in which you cannot argue against it. But it's not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. What we have is a secret, a hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. You want to go back to the start with Peter? Go back even further. What we have, this gospel truth, goes back beyond all of our lives. None of the rulers of this age understand, understood this. If they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the spirit do you see the cumulative force of that he's saying it's not paul's power it's not apollos's wisdom it's not peter's like 
being there at the start. If you want any of those things, then in each and every instance, you have to keep on going back to Jesus. You have to keep on going back to his life, to his death, to his resurrection and ascension. If you want power, you go to the cross. If you want wisdom, you go to the cross. If you want ancientness, if you want authenticity and authority, you have to go to the cross. By God's Spirit, that truth of Christ was brought to you, and that is what you need to cling to. When we take those glasses off, church life is all about who is the most blank. Fill in whichever blank puts you highest up the ladder. But we put the glasses on, and church life is all about who is clinging to and who is serving Christ the most. Oh, hello. Weather. See, what they were doing... Well, we'll get there. Okay. Oh, it's still on. I quite like that. I've got a loud voice. If the lights do go off, I'll shout. They were pitting guys against each other who shouldn't have been pitted against each other. That's the point. They were trying to draw uh, tribal lines. They were trying to make groupings. They were trying to sow division where division did not exist. And we do that in exactly the same way. Paul isn't saying that they're not supposed to see these men. Paul is not saying that there's anything wrong with how these guys uh, present the gospel. Paul is saying what is wrong is how we focus in on an element of style, an element of preference, an element of gifting in them, which God has given them to the detriment of the message that they're sharing. Chapter 3, um, starting in verse one of you says, I follow Paul. Another one says, I follow Apollos. Aren't you just being merely human when you do that? What is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you have believed. Both men used by God as the Lord assigned to each. Then this is how he kind of describes what they were doing. I planted Paul, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace God given to me, Grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Now let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation, a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And now if anyone builds on the foundation, be it with gold, with silver, with precious stones, or with wood or hay or straw, each one's work will become manifest. That will be like tested and displayed. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of what sort each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. What they'd missed was that in all three men's, in all three styles, in all three personalities, was this common thread of bringing Jesus, of working towards a harvest of 
faith. You can't get much different in terms of how things look than a farmer who plants and the one who comes behind and waters. They're very, very different jobs. They look very, very different. But what Paul is saying is, but you've got to understand, both of those jobs need to be done. Both of those farmers who are doing that are hoping to have a crop at the end of it. They look entirely different. You cannot say the one who sows seed is best. I am of the seed sower. You cannot say the one who waters is best. I am of the waterer. No. You've got to see beyond that. You've got to see above that and say, do you know what? The one who gives growth, the Lord of the harvest, he is the great one. He is the one that both the one who sows and the one who waters is serving. Now, this bit is quite important, actually. He's showing them that you cannot pit Paul versus Apollos versus Peter because even though they go about their works in very different ways, they are still about the same work. He isn't saying that it doesn't matter what anybody says either. That's why he switches to the metaphor of the building. He says, you know what, on this foundation of Jesus that has been laid, people can come along and they can build in good ways or bad ways. It is possible to build on that true foundation with something that isn't appropriate, something that will not last. We know from the book of Galatians, the letter that he wrote to the church in in, um, Galatia, that when Peter stepped out of line on the gospel, Paul was quick, Paul was vocal, Paul was public in putting him right. Paul is not here speaking about guys who are twisting the gospel, distorting the gospel, when Peter, even in this unconscious way, started leading people away from the cross of Christ, Paul put him right. No, Paul is here saying when people are leading you to Christ, then I don't care how they're doing it. I don't care what that looks like. You've got to see them as people who are servants of God. This isn't about when folks stray into error. That is a whole other issue. Paul is going to address errors in the Corinthian church. This is about people wanting to carve up Christ's church. This is about people wanting to cause division on the line of style rather than than substance. And here's the thing, I'm finally going to get to it. Those people who say, I belong to Christ, what they were doing was ignoring the fact that Paul, Apollos, and Peter, their very message was Christ crucified. They were, they were if you like, turning their backs on the means and the ways that God had appointed to serve them and to speak to them and to open their eyes to the truth. In uh, verse 21, Paul picks up this idea and he says, Let no one boast in men, but not because men are nothing, but because men, those messengers, are servants of God. All things are yours. You don't need to choose between Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that is Peter, or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All of those are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ's is God. He's saying, don't, in in one sense, yes, fine, kind of rise above the divisions, 
but not to the extent where you go, what God has given me, I don't want. Recognize that these are servants of Christ who are lifting up the name of Jesus. These divisions in the church, these groups, were there because in their heart of hearts, they wanted something more than Jesus, didn't they? If the message was sufficient, then they would have clung to that. But in their worldly vision, without the lenses of who Jesus is and what he has done, that wasn't enough. They needed something else to get a foot up the ladder above somebody else. The truth is there is nothing more than the cross. There is nothing more than the king having entered into our lowly, horrible, fractured, broken, dirty, decaying world. Of him having lived a perfect life and died in our place. Of him conquering death and rising to life again. Of him ascending and sitting on a throne. Of him promising to come back and restore everything to the way that it's supposed to be. There is nothing more than that. It's the A, B, C, it's the A to Z of everything, the Christian faith and even the world we live in. That is it. There's nothing more than that. But they wanted something more. They wanted something that made them feel special in a way that they could say other people weren't special. And so we've got to finish by asking the question, what does that look like for us? What does that look like for the church today? Where do we divide? Because we do divide, don't we? It's one of the saddest parts of church history. The churches have divided, not over issues of the cross and people speaking lies about who Jesus is, but over issues of preference, over issues of style and personality. What could this look like for us? Well, I'm going to flip it first of all and, and, and suggest that actually one of the ways we can do exactly the same things as they were doing is by having an unquestionable devotion to just one source. So rather than saying and judging and thinking negatively of other people, we can have an attitude where we've already decided in our heart of hearts who our champion is, who our main theologian is, who our favorite musician is, who our this or our that is, and no matter what they do, unquestioningly, we will follow them. Can I confess I do that? There are pastors, there are teachers who I read, who I listen to, and I've got them filed away in my mind as totally and utterly sewn up and sound. They're my absolute favorites. And what I do when I come to them is take off my gospel lenses, my filters, to judge and to test whether what they're teaching is right, and I just trust them implicitly. That's a dangerous place to be in. If one person's words, you don't have any kind of filter to question them. On the flip side of that, though, we have in our minds, I certainly have, I'm not going to name any names, but there are people who, as soon as they're mentioned, I think, nah, not interested in that. 
there's something about them that just doesn't sit right with me, how they present themselves, how they present the gospel, the kind of the view and the vision of Christianity that they put out there. And it's got nothing to do with how they describe who Jesus is. It's got nothing to do with how they describe what Jesus has done. It's got nothing really to do how they describe living life in his world. I just, I just don't like them. And what I tend to do Honestly now, confession time is that as soon as one of you mention that person's name, and I've got a particular pastor in mind, I think less of you. I think, oh, you shouldn't. What a dope. What a dope you are and what a dope they are and how much better I am to have my favorite, brackets, Andrew Wilson, um, my favorite over here, and I wish that you liked him more and you didn't like that person. I wish. That's what I do. And I think you guys can do that as well. There are people who, as soon as their name is mentioned, whether it's an author, whether it's a teacher, hey, even in our church, whether it's um, a, 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 a song singer, writer, what do we call them? Composer, that's right. You either think, right, I don't need to check this anymore. I know who it's by, so it's definitely right. Or you think, well, I know who that's by, so it's definitely wrong. Even though I can't see why it's wrong, but it's definitely wrong and it's horrible and I hate it. And anybody who sings it is evil. We do that. We do that. Whether we make awkward little sections in church. Okay, everyone who likes Stuart Townend can sit by you. Everybody who likes Hillsong can sit by there. Everybody who likes Wesley can sit by there. And everybody who likes just speaking the Psalms can sit at the back. We don't do it like that. But in our hearts... We make judgments about each other. Do you know what I think is one of the saddest things probably that could happen in this particular church? We are a church that have to or have decided to come together in spite of our differences of opinions on various things. A people who have come together in spite of our different opinions on particular styles and substance. The really sad thing that we could do is just tolerate each other. And God bless you if you are tolerating stuff right now. Putting up with stuff that is way, way, way not your preference. Not how you see things as they should be done. I will even take it a step further and say in certain areas of belief and doctrine, things don't quite line up for you. I don't mean on the cross, I don't mean on the gospel, I don't mean on salvation, I don't mean on sinfulness or, um, uh, you know, what the church is or, or anything like that in our doctrinal basis. But, but things that we as a church don't hold on to tightly, that we give liberty and freedom for people to, to believe different things on. And, and you know that there are other people who disagree with you and you tolerate them. And there's no big dividing line. There's no slagging matches in public. There might be some gossiping and slander behind backs. But in your heart of hearts, you pity someone else. And you, and you just kind of coexist and tolerate them. What the gospel lens put on, what Paul is putting forth here, what he explains so wonderfully in the book of Ephesians, isn't people who just tolerate one another isn't just people who for a day a week decide to put their differences aside and come together. Paul is speaking about people who love each other. People who sacrifice for each other. People who will live and speak for the betterment and for the best of someone else, 
even if you know they enjoy something you don't. It's so much more than the dividing lines being scrubbed out. It's the unity that the gospel is supposed to bring. There is so much that could divide us as a church. There is so much that could divide us. In terms of style, and a little bit in terms of substance, that need not divide us. And I want to encourage you this morning that all the means, all the ways that God has given are necessary for us to do what God has called us to do. It's again, it's another point that we're going to come to in the the letter to the Corinthians. Uh, He uses this imagery of the body, but we can stick with it just with the imagery of planting the seeds and watering it. Paul is necessary for God's plans to be fulfilled. Apollos is necessary for God's plans and purposes to be fulfilled. Peter is necessary for God's plans and purposes to be fulfilled. And I want you just to entertain the thought this morning now that that thing, that that style, that that person, that that group that you don't particularly like over and above your preferences is necessary. That God is using that, that God has a purpose, that God has a plan for that. Do not call unclean that which God has called clean. Paul was even bold enough to say, I don't care what motives someone is preaching Christ as long as Christ is proclaimed. That's the sort of unity, that's the sort of antidote that we need in a culture, in a society that we live in that wants to look down on other people. We're not immune to it. We're not immune to trying to pick us, ourselves up, and to push other people down. And it should not be in the life of the church. The antidote to it all is to put our gospel lenses on. And to look for Christ and him crucified. That's how Paul describes him. From the wisdom that has been there from before the ages. From, look for the power that the Spirit brings to become a people who are united around Christ. It might be a problem that we come together from all sorts of different backgrounds and we don't make a big deal out of certain things because we've got to coexist. But do you know what? It is a privilege. It's a privilege that we can stand shoulder to shoulder and we can say, do you know, the one thing we want is to know Jesus more. The one thing that we want is to make Jesus more known. My prayer is that as we continue to walk our way through 1 Corinthians, that we would be a people who are seeing the gospel, who are understanding just how far, just how deep, just how wide what Jesus has done impacts and covers our entire lives. And the differences, the differences might still be there. There will still be people in Corinth who Paul just makes more sense to, who Apollos just makes more sense to, who Peter just makes more sense to. But you know what? Those differences aren't reasons to separate. They aren't reasons to segregate. They aren't reasons to look down and to judge others. They are reasons to be thankful to God, the one who gives the growth. I pray we'd have that same attitude too. Lord God, I thank you for how you have used different men, different women in the, in the life, in the history of the church to help us be in a place right now where our eyes are open to the truth, that we can see the world as it truly is. 
as a broken place, as an evil place, as a place that is full of people who have turned their backs, rejected you, Lord God, and we live in the fallout from that. Lord, I thank you that you have used men, you have used women, you continue to use them to help us to see Jesus is the one who has come to put all things right. Lord, I thank you for those people who faithfully, having seen and watched and witnessed that horrendous event of Jesus dying, Lord, that you graciously showed them Jesus rising to life again. You gave them the courage, the strength to stand up, even though people would beat them, even though people would kill them for sticking to this message that Jesus died and Jesus rose again. Lord, we, in so many senses, love it if we could say that Jesus is still around but they witnessed that ascension. Lord, I thank you that you've used men and women to take that message to the ends of the earth. Lord, I thank you in our own lives that that story of God taking flesh and dying, defeating death and rising again, that sounds so daft, that sounds so foolish, that sounds so implausible, Lord, you have made it true to us. You have opened our eyes to the truth of it. Lord, I pray for anybody who's here this morning who doesn't know that truth. And I thank you for the privilege that we each have to be a part of that truth coming and settling and resting in their hearts. Lord, I thank you as a church. We are not one-dimensional, but we are different people brought together around this glorious human, this glorious king, united in his kingdom. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. hope that you found today's message useful and challenging and we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amfordchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss if you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church make sure to like us on Facebook and lastly check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts Thanks for listening.